John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the Word, and without him, not anything was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's the, the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift uh, that this Advent season is for us each year where we set aside time to wait, wait for Christmas to celebrate your birth, just like the nation of Israel waited for you, and where we wait together for your return when you will uh, come to judge your enemies and save your people to be with you once and for all. And so we long for that day, uh, even as we wait patiently for it. And uh, we trust you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. we got a lot going on in verse 1, quite a bit to unpack. You'll notice right from the jump, in the beginning, sounds a lot like what, what book? Genesis, right? In the, so so uh, the book of Genesis starts the exact same way, in the beginning, and so uh, John is setting up a parallel. He's saying, uh, just like you read, all of his readers uh, that, that, are, that are Jewish are familiar with the, um, the first chapter of Genesis, and so he's kind of setting up literarily his uh, book to, be, to begin like that. So Genesis begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we can kind of extra- extrapolate that whatever it is that John is talking about, whoever it is he's about to introduce, that person place or thing, existed in the beginning. In Genesis, what in the beginning means is eternity past, before time and space, before there was any creation of anything, God existed. God has always existed. You and I have not. Everything physical in this world uh, had a beginning. I mean, secular scientists today agree that, that the universe had a beginning. I don't know when it was, but, but no one thinks that the universe is eternal, and God is. The Bible says that God, so, so God existed before the heavens and the earth were created. There was God. This is Genesis 1. He's always existed. He's totally and completely self-existent, self-sufficient, free to do whatever he wants. That's what it means for God. According to Genesis 1, that's what it means for God to exist in the beginning. And John is saying, take all of that that you learn from Genesis 1 about the self-existence and self-sufficiency and eternality of God. And I want you to bring all of that and, and import it into what I'm telling you about this person that this gospel is about. He existed in the beginning. So in the beginning, eternity past was the Word, the Logos. The Word, so the, the word Word, capital W, Word, um, was was 
pregnant with meaning and connotations and implications in the ancient world, both in the the nation of Israel and in the broader Gentile world uh, around it. In the in the Greek word, the Gentile world, they they loved they loved the the word the word word. They loved the word logos. That was like a big thing. All of our any any uh, science or any field of study, right? Paleontology. Uh, anything that ends in ology, that's logos, that's word. And so that was a big fundamental word in Greek culture because they just, they, they, Greeks, so, you know, Greeks were big, they were thinkers, man. Plato, Aristotle, all of these, you know, Romans were like construction workers and, you know, they'll they'll hit you with their army. Greeks were like, we're just going to, we're going to like sit around and think about the nature of things, right? That was like big in, in Greek culture. And so the, all of that thinking, all of that philosophizing that happened from all of those Greek philosophers, they were thinking about the word. The word, as Greek culture understood it, is not a, limited to just a word that you say in a sentence, but it was this like broad idea of reason, rationality, the essence of being, the essence of your soul, all of that has to do with uh, the, the word. When we sit around and think about philosophy, we're thinking about the word. What is the nature of being? What is the nature of man? What is the, the essence of reason and ration? That's all logos. So, so the word logos was, you know, n- n- not people outside of the nation of Israel, they, they, this, meant, this meant a lot to them. They're saying, oh man, you're saying that whoever this gospel is about, uh, is like he is the the center of all things, the most important primary thing in all of the the world. He's the he's the word. It, it meant something kind of different to, to Israelites in the nation of Israel, because uh, when you mention the word in the nation of Israel, they're not so much thinking about this like generic, ethereal, abstract, philosophical essence, rationality, reason, as much as they're thinking specifically about the word of the Lord. We see that all over the place in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord, starting in Genesis 1, right? How does, how does uh, God create the world in Genesis 1? He speaks it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. And so the word of the Lord is something that we see uh, right, out, right from, the, from the get-go in the Old Testament, and then we see it all throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to this prophet. The word of the Lord was spoken to the people by the, by the prophets. The word of the Lord over and over. And it's often associated with God's power and his might. right? With God's power to create. He speaks the world into existence. With God's power to uh, save his people. right? Psalm 107 says, God sends out his word and his word heals his people and delivers them from their destruction. So God's word has a creating, a creative element to it, and it has a saving, salvific element to it, and it has a self-revealing, a revelatory aspect to it. God reveals his people, reveals to his people who he is through his word. So again, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your religious background is, is when you hear that in the beginning it was the word, this means a lot. This, this hits you with a lot of a meaning and a lot of connotations. And John is doing that on purpose. He's like, I, I, want, I, want my people, I want the people reading this to know that Jesus is the primary centerpiece of all of 
the, the universe. I want the Israelites in particular to know that Jesus is the word of the Lord, that they, that they revere so highly and that they associate with creation and redemption and revelation. Jesus is the word of the Lord. Well, if, if, that's what, if, Jesus, if this verse is about Jesus, then this, right, like, because we haven't got right, we haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there as we work through it. So, so in the beginning, eternity past, self-existent, was the word, the word of the Lord to save and reveal and create. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So now we're getting, I mean, with every clause, with every phrase, we're getting more and more uh, clarity. So, so there's the word that existed in eternity past, and the word was with God. So if you're with God, then, that, then you are not the, you're not the same as, that, as God because you're, you're with them. You're distinct from God. You exist together with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, i.e. distinct from God. And the Word was God. So somehow this Word, who existed in eternity past was with God, meaning distinct from him, but also was God, meaning unified together with him. And some sort of strange, you know, strange tension where these two things that are seemingly irreconcilable are both true at the same time. The word is God, fully God. All of the attributes of deity belong to him. There's nothing that's true of God that's not true of the word because the word is God, but also the word is with God. Meaning that in some sense, the word is distinct from God and the, the, the word is, is uh, different than God and they, they exist together, co-eternal, co-existing for all of eternity. And so, obviously, the runway that we're circling here is the, the doctrine of the Trinity. That, that, that God exists as one God, not three gods, but one God who exists eternally in three persons who are distinct from one another. So, God the Father is not God the Son. God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's, it breaks the rules of algebra, right? Like, what is it, uh, a, if A equals B and B equals C, then that means A equals C. Well, presumably in algebra, but not in the Trinity, because, because uh, the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but God the Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So there's this weird tension going on in the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. You get a lot of clarity into the doctrine of the Trinity uh, from a guy named Athanasius, one of the church fathers. He's a big Trinity guy. All, everyone has their thing, right? Every, every I mean, all, today, I have a thing. I don't know what it is, but you guys probably do. Something that you just repeat over and over. It's like a thing that you're like, this is a hill I'm going to die on. So Athanasius, you know, he, his big thing, he devoted his life to the doctrine of the Trinity. He fought against all of these heresies and errors around the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, much... Uh, the result from much of his ministry was what we now have called the Athanasian Creed, which spells out a lot of the intricacies and a lot of the details about the doctrine of the Trinity, and it was largely born out of Athanasius' work in, in theology. And the Athanasian Creed, said, it's long, but here's a few of the, the highlights from it. Right? It says, God exists in three persons, 
neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. So three persons, same essence, they're all God, they're all unified in their essence, but their persons are not blended, so they're distinct. The the persons are distinct, but their essence, their godness, is all the same. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another distinct person, and that of the Holy Spirit is another distinct person. But the divinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, and their glory is equal, and their majesty is co-eternal. Athanasius. Every quality that the Father has, so too does the Son have, because they're all one essence. And so too does the Spirit have. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created, but he was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but he proceeds from the Father and the Son. There's, there's a lot more, you can just Google it. There's a lot more in the Athanasian Creed, but it is uh, profoundly helpful to understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. We, we believe that. In fact, I'd like to, I'd like to start reciting the Athanasian Creed uh, in that part of our service where we kind of affirm uh, the things that we believe together uh, at some point. But um, we believe the Athanasian Creed because we believe the doctrine of the Trinity, and the Athanasian Creed draws from a lot of verses all over the Bible, but this passage right here is probably chief among them. The reality that, that Jesus, well, that the Word, if it's Jesus, right, um, that the Word was with God and the Word was God at the same time. He was in the beginning with God. So that's what we know so far. We know that we've got this Word, this enigmatic character, who is uh, eternal, existed in eternity past, who is co-eternal with God, but also is himself God. That's what we've got so far. But then verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So now we're starting to get more clarity. We've got a singular male pronoun. The word is a he. It's a man. It's a person. It's not a force. It's not an a essence, right, like the Greeks might have thought. It's, it's, the word is a, is a person. It's a male person. And now we're starting to see that, that, that's, that we're talking about Jesus, the second person of the, of the Trinity, The Word is God. He possesses all the attributes of God. The Word is different from God in that he is distinct from God the Father. So so really what we're seeing in verses 1 through 2 is that Jesus Christ is God, uh, eternal, fully God, and he is fully and completely distinct from the Father. He was with God the Father, not the same as, not, 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 you know, identical to, but he was God because Jesus is fully God. He is uh, fully divine. And then in verse 3, we're going to transition to what this word, this second person of the Trinity, does or has done. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus Christ... The second person of the Trinity was involved in, responsible for, the creation of all things. 
I, I imagine most of us tend to associate the work of creation with God the Father, right? When we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we're probably, uh, th- we're probably associating that word God right there with God the Father. I mean, we don't meet Jesus in his incarnate form for, until the New Testament. So, so you know, we, it's, it's a long time before we, we see him. So obviously Genesis 1.1 is talking about God the Father and not necessarily about God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. That's how we might uh, uh, assume at first glance. But biblically speaking, that would be inaccurate. So uh, the creation of all things was not an act exclusively of God the Father to the exclusion of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Rather, it was all three persons of the Trinity cooperating together to uh, create all things. And we can see that by just reading a little bit further past Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? If we need to read the next couple of verses. So Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? That, that uh, stands to reason that we're probably talking about um, the Father there, at least primarily. But the very next verse says, and the earth was was without form and it was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So as God, as the triune God is creating all things, there is the Holy Spirit. So if we see God the Father in in Genesis 1-1, we see God the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2 involved in the work of creation. And then Genesis 1-3, where God speaks, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the word of God. The, the, in the beginning was the word. So, so the word that God spoke to create um, all things is an allusion to, and, and um, we can kind of see bound up in that word of God speaking, that's the presence of and the person of Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is also uh, there involved in creation. So the first three verses of your Bible, you see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, in some veiled capacity, which lines up perfectly with John chapter 1, where we see that um, Jesus himself was involved in creation. Nothing was made that was not made in some sense by Jesus. So it's not that God the Father created you and Jesus did not. It's that the triune God created you and all three persons were involved in that. It's similar to the work of redemption, right? We, we kind of established earlier that creation and redemption are kind of these mighty, arguably the two mightiest acts of God in the entire Bible are creating creation ex nihilo, creating something out of nothing. That's a mighty act of God. And redemption, saving sinners who deserve judgment. Those are, I think you can make a case that those are the two biggest, most significant, most seismic things that God does in the Bible, creating and redeeming. And we see that all three members of the Trinity are involved in both of those, right? We saw it in creation just now, I mentioned. But um, redemption, right? If you, if you were to look at um, Ephesians chapter 1, you're going to see... 
Just like Genesis 1 shows you the three persons of the Trinity cooperating together to create, Ephesians 1 shows you the three persons of the Trinity cooperating together to redeem and to save. It's a couple of verses from uh, Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the Father now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So God the Father, his involvement in the work of redemption is that he blessed us, chose us, predestined us, adopted us, willed it, purposed it. God the Father's role in the work of redemption is to plan it and arrange it and set things into motion, to send his son Jesus. Well, in, verse, in Ephesians 1 verse 7, we see the role of the son. Right? Uh, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Jesus is the one who shed his blood for sinners, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which according to the riches of his grace, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So God the Son, Jesus Christ, his involvement in the work of redemption is not so much planning and arranging and appointing and sending, that's the Father, but his is to do it, to execute it, to accomplish it, to leave his throne in heaven and to come into the world and to live a perfect life that's required to fulfill the righteousness of God and to die a terrible death that's required to satisfy the wrath of God. God the Father arranges and predestines our salvation. God the Son accomplishes our salvation. And then later in that same chapter, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Father arranges, appoints, the Son accomplishes and does it, and then the Holy Spirit applies it. The Holy Spirit is the, is the one who uh, comes to you in particular and, and applies the finished work of Christ to your life, to your soul. He's the one who convicts you of sin. He's the one who draws you to faith in Christ. He's the one who regenerates your heart so that you can believe in Jesus. He's the one who fills you with his power so that you can live a new life that glorifies God. He's the one that keeps you. And, and causes you to persevere all the way until the very end. That's the Holy Spirit. So he's involved in the work of redemption as well. The Father arranges, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. All three members work together in concert to save sinners. That's how it works with redemption, which we see in Ephesians 1. That's how it works with creation, which we see in Genesis 1 and John 1, that all three members of the Trinity are cooperating together to accomplish these mighty acts of the Lord. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
everything was made through him, and without him, nothing was made. That was made. So there's, there's, only, there's only one thing or three things that were not made. And that would be God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So other than God, everything that exists was made. And Jesus was the one who made it. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ cooperating together. The, the Godhead, the triune God made everything. And so here, but here's why that's important. Here's why the doctrine of creation is important. I mean, it's important for a number of reasons. But one particular implication of the doctrine of creation for you and your life is that Jesus created all things, which includes you. Jesus created you, and therefore Jesus has authority over you. Jesus is your sovereign king, right? One of the implications of having created something is that you own it. It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. If you go home this afternoon and write a song, that song is now yours. You can whistle it, sing it, hum it. You can record it on your software on your computer. You can put it on the internet. You can sell it to a a company to use as a jingle for their dog food. You can do whatever you want with your song, right? You made it. You wrote it. It's your, if you write a story, that's your, that's your story. You can publish it. You can, uh, give it, you put it in letters and send it to your loved ones. You can put it in a time capsule and hope someone, what, right? If you write a story, you can do whatever you want with that story. No one can come up to you and say, uh, I want you, uh, let me tell you what I want you to do with your story. You'd say, well, it's my story. I can do whatever. If the, the characters in your story can't come up to you and say, I want to be different. I, you wrote me as a cowboy. I want to be an astronaut. I don't care. You're the character. I'm the author. I wrote the story. Nobody gets to tell the author what to do or not do with his own story because he wrote it. He created it. He owns it. He can do whatever he wants with it. That's the nature of what happens when you create something. And John is saying, Jesus created everything. So there is nothing in the world, including you, including everything that you have, own, possess. Jesus created everything, and therefore Jesus is sovereign over everything. Jesus can ask anything of anyone or anything in the universe, and he has not overreached his authority. Jesus can ask anything he wants to ask of you. Jesus can demand anything that he wants to demand of you. You don't have the right to question him or say no to him because he, Jesus can, can call you to be generous with your money and your time and your resources. Jesus can call you to do things that are difficult or inconvenient. Jesus can call you to lay down your rights and forego your preferences for his sake or for the sake of others. All of that is perfectly within the scope of what Jesus has every right to do because he has total sovereign authority over you and your life because he created you and you belong to him. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is eternal. 
Jesus is God. Jesus is one of the three persons of the triune Godhead alongside the Father and the Spirit, and Jesus is the creator. That's, that's what we've seen so far in the first three verses. Eternal, divine, trinity, creator. Verse 4, And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if we've got word, eternal, divine, trinity, creator, we've got two more to unpack, life and and light. Both of which, I mean, you're probably seeing the trend, both of which are reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, right? We see life being created in Genesis 1, and we see light being created in Genesis 1. And so John is drawing heavily on it. He's intentionally saying Whoever it was that was working and acting and speaking and doing in Genesis 1, that's who this guy is that I'm talking about right now. This person that my gospel is about is the same in some sense as that person that was acting in Genesis chapter 1. And he says that person is the source of all life. Now in one sense, Jesus being the source of life, in him was life. In one sense, that refers, I think, to create. We're seeing kind of creation and redemption being, uh, you know, held, shown kind of side by side uh, over, over and over here. And so, yeah, in one sense, when John says, in Jesus was life, I think he's saying that Jesus created all life, right? The first few days, he's creating the light, and the water, and the land, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and everything. And then he starts to create living things to fill and populate the world that God has created. So, so one thing that John is saying is that Jesus was involved in creation, in the bringing about of, of life. But, while it's true that in one sense... Jesus was the source of life at creation. It's also true in another sense that Jesus is the source of life through uh, his work of redemption. And John is going to circle back to that over and over and over throughout his gospel. Listen to some of these verses from the, the rest of the gospel of John. 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus gives life to, to all of creation at creation, but Jesus gives life to his people through his redemptive work in the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 10. I came that my people might have life and have it abundantly. So something over and, over and above the life that Jesus gave generally at creation, he is giving specifically in and through his redemption. Chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and that they may know me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So true life, eternal life, is found through knowing Jesus. Over and over and over, Jesus is referred in John's gospel as life the source of life, the giver of life. If you know him, then you have life. If you're separated from him, then you do not have life. And so verse 4 is true in the sense that Jesus gives life to everyone at creation, but it's also true in the sense that he gives life to his people 
when he saves them. He gives them new life, better life, abundant life, eternal life. Apart from trusting in Jesus, apart from trusting in Jesus, we are all alive in some sense. We're alive in the sense that we are breathing and interacting and speaking. But apart from Christ, prior to coming to Christ, our situation is, frankly, pretty bleak. I think you could argue that apart from Christ, apart from having come to Christ, we're not fully alive. We're not as alive as we could be, otherwise would be. We're not forever alive. We've been created in God's image, which is great, but we've sinned against God, rebelled against Him, rejected His authority, invited His wrath and judgment and condemnation, and now we, are, we remain under it. And so at the end of our life, apart from trusting in Jesus, we will stand before our Creator, give an account to Him for how we lived in this life. We will have to give an account, give an answer for all of our sin and all of our rebellion. And God will justly and rightly condemn us to an eternity of conscious punishment, having been cast out of the presence of God forever. That's, that's the experience, that's the plight of human beings apart from trusting in Jesus. But, through the ministry of Jesus, through trusting in Him, the exact opposite is true, right? Our sins are forgiven, God's wrath is satisfied, and we have new life, eternal life, full and abundant life to be experienced right then, right now. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, with His power, so that we can have victory over sin, so that we can uh, be sanctified and grow to look more like Jesus. And then at the end of our life, we'll stand before our Creator and give an account to Him for how we lived in this life. In a sense, if you trust in Jesus, you will, you will stand before God to give Him an... He, God is going to ask you to answer for your life, to, to tell him why you think he should allow you into his presence to enjoy his glory. And if you're trusting in Jesus before anyone else can, say, can get a word in edgewise, Jesus is going to intercede and say, he's with me, she's with me, I was punished as if I was guilty of the sins that they committed. So that's done. It's taken care of. It's paid in full. It can't be paid twice. And so now God is free to treat that person as if they have lived the perfect life of Christ. And you'll be welcomed into the glorious presence of God to live with Him under His rule and to be treated by God as if you had lived the perfect life of Christ forever. That's what we have to look forward to as Christians. Being seen on the basis of Christ's righteousness, being treated on the basis of Christ's righteousness, enjoying eternal life and salvation and joy because of Christ's righteousness. So Jesus did not just give life generally to everyone at creation. Jesus gave life particularly and specifically to his people through his act of redemption. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the same exact thing is true for light, right? If we've kind of established that the life 
that, is, that flows forth from Jesus was, was given in one sense at creation, but then in a particular specific sense to the people of God who trust in him through his act of redemption. The same is true of, of light. We see light in Genesis 1 generally to all creation. Let there be light. Right? It casts out the, the darkness. Part of Jesus' act in Genesis 1 of creating all things was shining his light, and the light of Christ lit up the darkness that was there. Right? It lit up the, the nothingness that was there. But in another sense, in a deeper sense, the light of Christ does not generally light up the darkness of an uncreated world. The light of Christ lights up the darkness of sinners' hearts and melts, melts them and, and casts out the darkness of sin that's in our hearts as, as the light of Christ shines the salvation of Christ into our life. Listen to these verses from John. Three of them are from the gospel. One is from his letter later in the, in the New Testament. John 3.19, light has come into the world. That's not speaking specifically of light at creation, let there be light, but the light of Christ coming into the world in the New Testament. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12.46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 1 John 1, 5-7 God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. So Jesus came into the world. He brought his light into the world. The world is marred by darkness and sin. Our own hearts are marked by darkness and sin. And Jesus comes into them and he casts his light into the darkness of the sin in our hearts. And he gives us light moral and spiritual light to know God, trust God, obey God, walk with God, and glorify God, right? right? These are, are newfound capacities that we have because our hearts and souls and lives have been illuminated by the light of Christ. And that light, as it shines in our hearts, it is powerful, it is effective, and it does not, will not, cannot ever fail. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ will not fail in his efforts to save his people, his efforts to illuminate their hearts and save them in spite of the darkness that was once there. Jesus will not ever fail to save, no matter how dark their hearts are, no matter how hard their hearts are, no matter how much the darkness in their hearts tries to overcome the light of salvation that Jesus is shining into their hearts, Jesus will never fail. Listen to the, so I, 
earlier, John 3.19, right, that, that, um, that light has come into the world. That's part of it. But listen to the whole context there. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So, so the reality is that this darkness that resides in our hearts, it resents, it opposes the light of Christ. It sees it as a threat. It's like your immune system sees pathogens or a, a virus. It, it wants it, it doesn't want it in here. I've got my life, I've got my plans, I've got my sins, I've got my way of doing things. I don't want anyone coming in here talking about salvation, telling me that I need to repent, telling me that I need to die to myself and my own desires. I don't want anyone shining their light on my darkness because I like my darkness. I've gone to great lengths to cultivate this darkness and I want to keep it and protect it. That's how the human heart responds to the light of Christ. The light of Christ shines on the darkness of human hearts. The darkness of human hearts says, over my dead body, no one is ever going to put a stop to this darkness. No one is ever going to, no light is going to overcome the darkness of my hearts. And the light of Christ will never fail to overcome and succeed and overwhelm the darkness of our hearts. The darkness of our hearts has not, cannot, will not ever overcome the light of the salvation of Christ. When Jesus sets out to save a person, he succeeds. When Jesus leaves his throne in heaven and comes into this world as a little baby in Bethlehem, when he then lives decades worth of, of life in perfect righteousness, actively obeying the Father in everything that he does, when Jesus dies a sacrificial death on the cross, paying for the sins of his people, satisfying the wrath of God, when Jesus is raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death, when Jesus does all that for the express purpose of saving your soul and keeping it forever, he will not fail. He cannot fail. He will never fail. The light of Christ, the light of the salvation of Christ is stronger and more powerful than the darkness that is in the hearts of his people. The darkness that is in the hearts of people can try and mount a defense. It can circle the wagons. It can try to overcome the light of Christ's salvation. But the light of Christ shines into the darkness and the darkness is not able to overcome it. Jesus Christ will save and keep every single person that he sets out to save. He will not lose even one of them. And if you trust in Jesus, Jesus will save you and keep you forever. He will never, ever lose you. He can't. It's not, it's not ontologically possible. It's not something that can happen. Jesus saves everyone that he sets out to save. Jesus saves everyone who trusts in him. That's how John starts his gospel.
That's how he sets the stage for the next 21 chapters that are coming. Jesus is the Word. He's eternal. He's God. He's Trinity. He's Creator. He's life. He's light. And he shines the light of his salvation into the darkness of the hearts of his people. And the light of Christ overcomes their darkness and he saves them and keeps them forever. That's Jesus Christ. That's who we celebrate at Christmas. That's who we remember. That's who we wait for during Advent. And that's who we remember and observe together when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. God the Son came into the world as Jesus Christ to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that we could be saved and reconciled to God. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus Christ took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you're a a part of the people of God, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. This is our opportunity to Remember the gospel together. Wait for the second coming of Jesus together. Celebrate Jesus together as a family. You guys are going to come up and uh, lead us in, in some, some music. Uh, as they do, you can come forward down the middle aisle. Adam and I will be here to distribute the elements. Head back to your, to your seats. Take a moment. Pray. Confess your sin to Jesus. Receive the grace that Jesus offers to you. Eat and drink and remember and celebrate. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you to not take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in Jesus to save you from your sin so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his love and his presence uh, forever and ever. I'm going to pray and then we'll celebrate communion together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Word, the Word of God, the creative and redemptive and revelatory power of God, that you are eternal and divine, member of the Trinity, creator, that you've given us light and you've given us life. So Jesus, we acknowledge that you are our creator, our king, and we bow our knee to you. And we acknowledge that you are our redeemer, our glorious, sufficient savior, and we trust in you and we hold fast to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.